Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Landon Mayer, and he'll be answering your questions on sight fishing for trout. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website. Just fill in there your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed about future shows. This broadcast is being recorded. We'll be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. Content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Landon Mayer about sight fishing for trout. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongos, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Landon, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Landon's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Thanks to Stackpole, we'll also be giving away a copy of Landon's latest book, Sight Fishing for Trout, the second edition. Now, here's how you can win Landon's book. You must be the first person to answer the questions or sometimes two-part questions at the end of the show. And the, the question will be about something that Landon and I talk about during the show. So uh, take good notes, listen, and um, at the end of the show, type fast because uh, everybody will be trying to be the first person to, to get their answers in. And uh, if you are, then you'll win Landon's book. And if you don't win, um, there's a bunch of places you can get his book. We have a link on our uh, homepage for his book. Landon will be giving out his domain website address later on, and uh, so you'll have plenty of opportunities to uh, look into getting his book, uh, even if you don't win. So, but uh, but pay attention, and uh, we'll see what happens. Our guest tonight is Landon Mayer. Landon has been guiding professionally in Colorado on the South Platte River since 1997. The success in catching trout is fueled by an addiction to pursue large trout with small flies and lightweight fly fishing equipment. Landon enthusiastically teaches and demonstrates his techniques on the river knowledge uh, to fellow anglers and has developed innovative strategies for sighting, hooking, and landing selective trout. 
He shares these tips and secrets in his books, Colorado Best Fly Fishing, Sight Fishing for Trout, How to Catch the Biggest Trout of Your Life, in addition to two DVDs, Landing the Trout of Your Life and Weapons of Bass Destruction, both uh, which featured John Barr. Um, Landon is a contributing editor, a writer for Fly Fisherman and uh, High Country Angler Magazines. His contributions have also been featured in publications such as Field and Stream, Fly Rod and Reel, American Angler, Southwest Fly Fishing, and, and Fish and Fly Magazines. As an ambassador in the fly fishing industry, Landon represents several lines, including Sims Fly Fishing Apparel and is a royalty fly designer for Umpqua uh, Feather Merchants. He is also an advisory team member of Sims, Ross, Scientific Angler, Smith Optics, Fish Pond, and Cassio Pro Tech Watches. Landon, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate you having me back, and it's, it's always fun to, to do the show and, and dive into some of the tips and tricks for sight fishing for selective trout. So I really appreciate you having me back. I'm, I can't believe it's yeah. our sixth show already. <laughs> yeah, six shows, and um, folks, if you want to, um, I'm sure you'll be uh, excited after listening tonight to tonight's show, but be sure to go to our podcast archive on our site, and then you can search for Landon Mayer, and you can see the other five shows that we've done together. And, uh, yeah, Landon, I, as we were talking earlier, it goes back to uh, July 2007. So um, uh, awesome. that's, uh, that was during our first actual uh, year of, of doing these, these shows and podcasts. So, um, and just, folks, to give you an idea of the other ones he did, we did uh, one on trout tips. We did one on trout hunting, uh, Colorado's Four Seasons. Uh, the first uh, sight fishing for trout we did. We also did uh, fly fishing for big, huge monster trophy trout. Uh, so check out all those uh, all those shows in our archive, and you can uh, access those uh, on our site. So, yeah. So with that said, uh, we got lots of ground to cover tonight. Um, and bringing, you know, you've written a bunch of books. Um, a question came up, which was, uh, you know interesting because I hadn't had one like this before, but James Crosby in Colorado mm -hmm. Springs um, says, uh, you know, what was your motivation and, and process which got you to decide to, you know, start writing books uh, in the fly fishing industry? No, that's a great question. And, and hello, Jim. Thanks for thanks for tuning in and asking the question. I, For me, the biggest thing in, in being able to give back beyond the water. That's how I became interested in, in working with and writing books. There was a lot of notes that I try to take daily, gathering information on and off the water. And it just seemed like a really nice platform where if you weren't able to be with somebody on the water, you can hand them a lot of your information, your techniques, your strategies, and it's kind of a reference or even something that they can brush up on. And then the next time they come back out to do a guided trip, it was a great tool to have for them and for others when they're off the water. So that really, that really struck a chord with me. And it wasn't easy at first. You know, I think in, in writing, it's, in my personal opinion, you're either an angler that turns into a writer or a writer that turns into an angler. And being able to use both and utilize both, it's a challenge in its own right. But the fact that we're on the water daily as guides and teachers and helping instruct others, I think being able to have that flow onto the pages made it a little bit easier than it could have been if it was a different topic per se. So that's that's really the motivation is just being able to give back and keep that connection with each angler off the water. Did you, um, and I don't know, maybe uh, James has some interest in, in doing some writing. I don't know. He didn't say. But um, any tips you can, because uh, what you just said um, kind of made me think about, 
being on the water, you're focused on, on looking for fish and, and, and helping your mm-hmm. clients. But you're, right. all these things are popping into your head every day. I'm sure you're, you're you know, seeing new things, learning new things. Is there a way that you yep. were able to gather your information together during the day, or did you use recorders or any any kind of, you know, data collection techniques? To keep absolutely, all of the above, yeah. and absolutely, and in gathering, just like you said, gathering recordings, um, jotting down notes at the end of the day when it's fresh in your mind. Now, the beauty of an iPhone is you can do notes, you can do memo notes, and take all, all the information down by voice and then reflect back at the end of the day. And I think for the process of writing and honestly working on the water as a full-time guide and teacher, you do build up a strategy where it's a one, two, three or a one, two, three, four approach and having that template set up every day that you're on the water, everything runs smooth. You have a chance to go through all the details without confusion. And it's also not sensory overload for yourself or the angler and, I think that reflected into an outline in pages also really helps out, whether it's the outline for an article, setting up the chapters and the subtitles for a book. All of that really helps organize everything. And I think organization in regards to to writing in pages is what lets you flow into the pages and really capture the knowledge instead of having confusion and bouncing around. So that's one of the tips I've learned is just taking that strategy approach of one, two, three on the water and really trying to reflect that into the pages. Okay, good, good, good. Um, well, since we last talked, we, you know, we did a show on your first edition of um, uh-huh. Right Fishing for Trout. That was back, let me just look here, 2010. Um, 2010, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so nine, almost ten years ago. Um, so what, um, I'm sure, you know, as we all do, <laughs> Even you, I know, Landon, <laughs> learn stuff about fly fishing almost every time we go out, right? Um, and with all Absolutely. your experience, what did you have any new revelations over these past ten years about sight fishing and and or, or how to teach others how to sight fish? Uh, and any, I, we're going to get into a lot of details here shortly, but I just thought there might sure. be some highlights you want to talk about. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, it evolves. Like myself, I, I prefer to try to always remain a student on the water, never approach a day where I feel like I know everything. And, and that really is the reason for wanting to do a second edition in sight fishing was that a lot of the techniques evolved, a lot of the strategies or the ways to approach, even rigging. There's so much advancement in the industry, whether it's apparel, whether it's glasses, whether it's a lot of the utilized tools, which we'll cover tonight, and being able to disguise rigs and really Pool more trout with the amount of anglers forever growing and the pressure on the water also forever growing. That really was the reason for for writing the, the second edition. And the big question was how much information was included compared to when the first book came out ten years ago. And and it was nice. We ended up waiting a decade and just gathering thoughts and information along those ten years. And we put in just over eight thousand words, um, forty seven new images in a 13 brand-new core fly selection of a baker's dozen. So there's a lot of new information. But I felt there was a need to advance the pages as anglers advance. And to be honest, and now looking at anglers compared to 10 years ago, there's so much more talent on the water, and there's so many opportunities to learn that I thought it was the perfect time to come out with the book. Okay, good, good. Um, the One of the first questions we had was, um, Tom Melville in Staten Island, 
Uh, he says, how do you dress? Dark colors, camo, etc." And I noticed the cover on your new book. Uh, there you yeah. are in uh, dual camo co- colors. So, <laughs> so tell us about <laughs> yeah. uh, that. Absolutely. And, you know, the way that I've, I've learned to approach trout and the way that I teach on the water is to always look above and behind you and don't just match the foliage on the river's edge or the structure. Try to think about what the trout seen from a view below with the domed cone vision above. And that, that really does justify being able to wear different colors to match your surroundings. And the cover of the book reflects what we see a lot of in South Park, Colorado, or you'd see in Wyoming and Montana. And that's a lot of the, the sage or the buffalo grass, a lot of blue sky behind you. And just trying to match those earth tones, I think, allows you to sneak in closer to the trout. And it could be it could be the green foliage you're trying to match on the East Coast, dealing with the spring creeks, or trying to match the canyon walls and the canyon setting where you hike into a certain location. Or even cloudy days in snow-filled banks, you can wear, you know, light gray and white to try to blend in and match. But that really is my goal and the key. And I will change. The big question is how often do you change your apparel? I'll change my apparel based on the season. So if it's winter, I know I can wear a lot of browns and whites. If it's summer, I can get away with greens and blues. If I'm dealing with the spring months, oftentimes the weather and the conditions can change. So I'll just try to match it to the season, but most importantly, what's above and behind me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, the, you know, some people aren't seeing this picture right now, but you've got, um, you, you know, you've got the tans and browns of the, the, the stream side there, but then a, a blue top and, and, and looks like hat or hood. Um, so yeah, the, the hood right is, away, the I thought, yeah, huge. sky and land, you know, that, uh, Absolutely. And the biggest yeah. thing to remember, too, I, I do want to mention this. I think one of the advancements in apparel in regards to fly fishing and, and being able to scout and sight fish for new targets is being able to utilize a hood. In the past, you know, we relied on dark brim hats and thick side shield glasses. Now when you, when you match that to a hood, not only does it intensify the light looking out of a dark room, but it allows you to camouflage even more because you're you're literally matching the sky or what's above and behind you. So it's a great addition is to to always have a sun hood available to match what you need to behind. Yeah, and uh, gets you out of the sun too. So sun protection. Oh yeah, as well. sun protection. It, yep, sun protection gets you gets you out of the sun, keeps you protected, allow you to see more trout. It looks cool. There's so many advantages. <laughs> it looks cool. <laughs> Setting a fashion trend. <laughs> there you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah. But very, very yeah. useful for sure. <laughs> well, fly fishing fashion sure has changed over the years. <laughs> if you look at some of the photographs Absolutely. from the 1800s and stuff, you know, uh, guys out right. in suits and stuff. You know, it's like uh, yeah, exactly, okay, so, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, another question. Um, uh, Ed Constantini in, uh, in Wisconsin, he says, Hi, Landon, when sight fishing, do you have a preferred colored lens for your sunglasses, or do you need different lenses for varying conditions? That's a great question, and, you know, that's one thing that has changed for me, and I, I do believe you need a variety of lenses, and the reason I say that is my preferred color for the, the sunny conditions midday or changing skies midday is, is Silver Creek Brown. And I wear Smith Optics. I'm a fan of Smith Optics. There's other great lenses on the market as well. But the advantage with Smith Optics, being that they started in the freshwater industry, is that Silver Creek Brown is dark enough for light days, yet it's light enough for dark days. And with transitioning skies, 
you want a lens that can adapt and adjust to both. And when we use chromapop lenses, now you have a lens that provides more clarity and enhances color because the lens is actually made of a polarized material. And the addition to that is the low-light igniters. And what I've learned in traveling for the book, The Hunt for Giant Trout, or going to different states where water conditions and light conditions change drastically, and I think the key here is really trying to utilize the first and the last hour of the day. The low-light igniters allow 42% light transfer, and it really does lighten up that dark room so you can see all the way till the end. You don't get as many visuals in those dark lit, you know, sections of the days or the first or last hour of the day, but it at least brightens it up enough to where you can see the water effectively fish with more confidence. Now, um, the Chromapop is a, uh, I believe, a um, trademarked um, tech or technology for Smith, right? It is. It is. And, and you'll – You'll still get the enhancement of, of, you know, light and colors, but not as rich as you get with Chromapop. And it's it's lightweight, scratch-resistant. And the comfort of the lens, too, is the other key component. Just make sure that when you purchase lenses, I always recommend you can do so online by all means, but going into an actual physical store or location and trying them on, you want thick side shields, a wraparound model, and comfort becomes very important so you don't get a headache, which oftentimes takes you out of the zone. Yeah, yeah. Now, this low-light igniter, is that an addition to a chromopop lens, or is that a separate type of lens altogether? It's a separate type, yeah, separate type of lens, and that's one that I carry with me now. So there's even situations, one example is on the South Holston River when I fish with Blaine Chocolate. I noticed Blaine was actually wearing a pair of shades on his neck and also wearing, covering his eyes, a, a different pair of shades. And what he was doing was adjusting for the light conditions throughout the day. But the biggest thing was being able to adjust when a lot of those dark skies, you know, crept in with the storm or he was preparing for the first or last hours of the day. And that really is a helpful tip that I started using more because you're less reluctant to pull it out of your bag when you're actually wearing it on your neck or you have it within your gear where you can grab it quickly and switch them out. So it is two different lenses, enhancing color, adjusting to the, the hours and the daylight during the daytime hours, and then really capitalizing on that first to last hour of the day. Yeah, there's been plenty of days in the middle of the day where, you know, storms are rolling in. It gets so dark, you think it's, uh, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> going into twilight. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, the um, – now, uh, Rich in Colorado Springs, he says, for a person who wears prescription glasses, is there any polarized glasses that help see better? Um, as the fit-overs and clip-ons don't seem to do much for me. He says, they seem to work only looking in one direction and not the other, or is this just me? No, it, it can be. It can play tricks on your eyes with fit-overs. It depends on the comfort. But I would recommend, Rich, is reaching out to some of the companies that produce the glasses. And I know Smith Optics specifically is really going to ramp up their prescription department and their capabilities providing lenses for anglers that need prescription. And with the Chromapops, too, now, you can get a prescription shade and have a little bit more bend and mold to the face. So there is an advantage there. Outside of cocoons for fitovers, there is another company called, which is a sister company, I believe, to Smith Optics, or was in the past, SunCloud, 
and they provide a fit over that's a little bit smaller in size. So that's another option as well. So it sounds as though that, in your mind anyway, that um, Smith Optics is probably the leader in at least freshwater. Uh, uh, I think I think Smith Optics, in my opinion, they've been in the market a long time. I I believe in their cause and I believe in their product. There's there's Costa, there's other you know Maui Gyms, Oakleys, there's other right. industry professionals that also do the same thing with lenses and technology. But I just believe in Smith being that, you know, at one point they were action optics. And I just remember from a child growing up, those were the lenses I had confidence in. And they've continued to advance with their technology, including the chromopops, which I think made a huge difference as far as being able to locate more trout in color. Yeah, and um, Rich, I know from personal experience that um, um, you're going to have to find a, an optician that's carrying Smith optics that can fit you for, like I have progressive lenses. And so right. um, they won't do those, uh, you know, mail order. Um, they want somebody right. to fit you for those measurements and so forth. So you pretty much have to find a dealer dealing in Smith, go in there, and then get fitted. And, and you are limited, you know, like you just said, um, landed to, uh, certain, you know, designs because of the shape of the lens. They can only do so much with prescription lenses, which has always bugged right. me, but, you know, I'm always and looking now, for some And stuff. now, exactly. Yeah, and now with Chromapop, heavy wraparounds. Though, they, and, yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Sorry. No, I was just going to say with Chromapop, they can bend that lens now. So there is a little bit more curvature. So there are there are more options than what was in the past where it was just a straight flat frame as far as the, the okay. lens itself. So there is a little bit more option there, which is great. Yeah, yeah, good. So let's um let's talk about uh you know, seeing trout. Um sure. what are the ideal conditions for seeing trout? In other words, if, if every if the, the stars are aligned and the clouds and the sun and the trees what what is the optimal situation to see into the water? That's a great question and one that I I hope happens every day. I'm out with any individual, whether it be a guide trip, friend, loved one. The the ideal condition, in my opinion, is when you have backlight where the sun is dropping. Let's say it's the afternoon and the sun's dropping at an angle nearly or close to 45 degrees. It's at your back. And in the horizon is a dark storm that's coming in. So we know that evening we're going to receive rain or there's a snowstorm coming in. And the reason I say that is with the sun at your back, it's illuminating everything in front of you. So there's almost like a glow from the water. But the advantage there is the dark skies that are creeping in are reflecting that dark image on the water surface. So that eliminates all glare but yet that low alpha-glow light is enhancing color in the water, and it is one of the best ways to locate larger trout because large trout, I also believe, can be fooled to thinking that twilight or nightfall is near with these huge storms coming in where the sky turns black. That's when predators come out to hunt. Fish in the evening hours come into shallow water. But in my opinion, that is the optimal, perfect conditions that you can have in any scenario, to see trout and just really have the comfort level there for angler and fish because oftentimes the fish are very hungry, aggressive, and, again, without the reflection of shadows, you're not scooping as many fish. Good, good. Let's uh, take a quick break here, and when we come back, I'd like to talk 
uh, to you about Windows. Um, and I know you. You bet. You know, you just described one window, so to speak. Uh, and uh, so let's sure. dig into that after this quick break. Looking for that shot at permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Landon Mayer about sight fishing for trout. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box there to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show tonight as possible. Um, Landon, I'd like to ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world. So uh, I know you got a heavy schedule coming up, so tell us what's up. Yeah, i got some, some great travels coming up and wishing everybody happy holidays. I, I can't believe it's almost Christmas. And after the Christmas holiday and the new year, then I'll go right into show season. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it this year. We've got a lot of great new information with the two new books that came out in uh, 2019. And that information to follow helps develop some really unique and, and advanced programs. So I'll be at the fly fishing show coming up in January. I'll be in, in February. I'll be in Denver. New Jersey, Atlanta, and California. And one of my favorite things now to do at the show is, is to offer the, the Trout Hunting 101 class, which is awesome. I, I always said when I was a kid, I wish I had some of those classes available where I think they charge 85 or $90, and you get two-and-a-half-hour setting with 10 students or less in the classroom. So it's like a, like a full-day guide trip in, in one shop. But the shows are always a great, great fun, going to individual clubs, being able to escape in some solitude in the winter season and, and just the excitement of a new year. It looks like we have a great snowpack in Colorado, and, and I'm jazzed up. I'm ready to go. And what uh, what shows are you going to be at? Uh, what cities? I'll be at the, the Denver show, which is the first weekend in January. After that, I'll be at the ISE show, which is also in Denver, Colorado. I'll, I'll be at the Farmington River Anglers Association in Connecticut in January. And then I'll also be at the New Jersey and Atlanta fly fishing shows at the end of January into the 1st of February. So great, great January schedule coming up. But those four shows are, are a lot of fun. And if you haven't experienced a fly fishing show before, they've grown so much and the available information and knowledge from so many good anglers is, it's endless. So it, it's really a treat to be there. And, and I'm honored and really appreciate the chance to be involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, those shows are great, and uh, Ben Ferminsky puts on uh, a great, um, uh, brings in a great array of, of all kinds of uh, manufacturers, shops, and guides, and, and all the the great oh, people yeah. in the industry. Yeah. That their knowledge base is incredible. So, um, uh, yeah, looking yeah, forward. To it. it always gets me new, excited. New life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chuck did a great job and continues to do great work, and Ben has really added some new life and energy to the show and. Kirk does a great job at ISC, too. It's just the show season's incredible. So, yeah, the Fremskys have done an amazing job. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
Well, great. Oh, and what's uh, your, the, your website address so that people can get in touch with you? Yeah, the website is, yeah. you bet, it's landandmareflyfishing.com, and the events are listed under the events page and the pod, podcast page. We'll have tonight's show, and then you can go to any information on the menu bar from guided trips to information about the books, and it, it's all available there at your fingertips. So it's a great opportunity. Thanks to David Martin and and Chris Hansen for their awesome work on the website, which which makes it really interactive. So check it out, and I hope to see everybody at one of the shows or even a chance to uh, to do the featured classes. That'd be great. That's great. Yeah, looking forward to it. So um, let's talk about uh, windows. Um, you described them you a bet. lot in your books, and um, how you bet. how can we? What are they, and how can we use them in the different situations we might encounter? Yeah, windows are amazing, and in fact, in the sight fishing book, there's a whole chapter devoted to windows. It's over, it's over 3,700 words, and the advantage with windows is that you get a glimpse at the image below. You're not always going to get a detailed view, and in fact, within a 10-second window, it can even be slight movement, coloration, the opening of the mouth. My favorite example of a river window is when you're in turbulent pocket water and you have seams and ripples and multiple current speeds. But at some point, the water breaks, whether it's bumping over structure on the bottom, breaking around structure. And as it moves in its own condition and its own environment, it creates slick what look like windows. And if you try to see the window by keeping your eyes locked in one area, it will pass you by. But if you start at the top of the run or the area you believe the trout's holding, and you see the slick section of water, which looks like a window, you can look into the window and then track it as it's drifting downriver. And that's one of the best ways to really find fish in turbulent water. And the reason, in my opinion, you want to target turbulent waters, all those trout can be actively feeding. They're not stressed or wary because they have a house. They have a roof over their head. They're protected, and they have a zone that they can actively feed. So that's one of my favorite ways and examples of using that in the river setting. For still waters, there's multiple windows as well. And, and one of my favorite windows in still waters is when you have chop pickup, and whenever there's chop and you get wind blowing on the surface of the water, and we like to call that big fish chop, on one side of every ripple or bump, there's glare. Well, on the other side of the glare, there's an open window where it doesn't reflect light. And if you have that real small chop where it's three to six inches and it covers a whole bay, all of a sudden the non-glare section of each bump or ripple creates giant windows for you to see in past the surface where if the water was slick and calm, you'd have nothing but glare. So those are two really good examples of windows and rivers and still waters. And that's where we've added a lot in the, in the new book, Sight Fishing for Trout, second edition, is adding the elements and conditions and opportunities in still waters in addition to rivers as well. Do those, um, do the windows tend to reoccur in the same space, you know, uh, in, as a pattern? In other words, if they're created from some That's, kind of structure underneath, can you, you follow exactly. one down? Are you looking for the one to, to make, uh, to make itself again? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And rivers, that's exactly right. So in rivers, it's, it's a timed pattern. There's a sequence. So the window will drift by, and then you can wait for another window. Could be within a second, could be within a few seconds. But that being said, there will be a pattern you'll see. So it's not just one, one shot to look into the window. If you see, 
something that looks out of the ordinary, you think maybe I saw a tail or opening of a mouth, you can continue to investigate every time there's a new window, you get a new look, and then you start really timing the window as well. So if it's a fast-moving window, you time the speed to look. If it's slow, you time the speed there. And the same can be said using wind where if you look at the weather forecast or you have radar on your watch, there's so many different technologies we can use. But knowing that the wind is ideal when it's seven miles per hour, you can then track the wind for future days and for even the, the moments and continuing in that day where every time it reaches seven, you know, you get the perfect shop and you get that window created. So there's, there's for sure patterns you want to keep an eye out for. Yeah, 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 that's very interesting. Uh, Phil McCartney wrote in uh, from California, Kentucky, and Phil, one of these days you're going to have to tell me how a, a town or city in Kentucky got named California, but I've always wondered about that. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I, I want to know that story as well. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you can write in, Phil. You're listening, I know. So tell us how how that happened because, some, you know, that it's like one of those commercials on TV. It's just not right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, Phil uh, Phil's a, a longtime listener and has lots of good questions. Uh, he says, do you first Thanks, need the water to locate places where you expect the trout to be prior to seeing them? Absolutely, absolutely. The The foundation of sight fishing is 100% reading water. So I always – I encourage anglers, too, because a lot of times we can get stuck in, in believing that it's one way or there's one approach or one technique, but it really is the stepping blocks and the foundation that make you a better sight fisher or trout hunter and the foundation blocks start with reading water. And reading water can be a variety of things, but what I've always encouraged anglers to look for is cover oxygen and food supply. And we've mentioned that on other shows. I think also, too, whenever you find water that has those three components, but also it's conventional where, let's say it's a deep run where there's a drop-off or a long seam between two rocks or a large moving and sweeping eddy on the edge of the river. We all know these are locations where a trout hold. What I've encouraged more anglers to do over the last 10 years is instead of looking at that being one specific hole, break it up to where literally make that hole its own river or its own lake. So you want to look at specific areas, the edge of the ripple, the drop off into the deep run, the middle of the run, the tail out, if you dissect that run or that specific area, not only does it give you more opportunities to see trout, but it really does allow you to thoroughly cover the water instead of just brushing right past the deep run, looking in it for a few seconds, and then moving on. So that's it starts with reading water, and I really encourage anglers, too, now, is just take 60 seconds and investigate each one of those productive zones that you believe trout are holding, and it's incredible how many fish are actually within those zones. Okay, good. Um, uh, Dino in Michigan asks, what correlation do you find between depth and spookiness? <laughs> That's a, I, I saw that before the show, and, and Roger was kind enough to send out some questions, and, and we can kind of think about this a few hours before we have a chance to get on the show, which is great because it, it gets everybody's mind spinning. And seeing that question, which is a great question, by the way, it is very, very important. And I've, one thing I've learned over the last 10 years is that a fish that is holding closer to the surface or in shallower water has the least amount of chance of spooking compared to a fish that's holding 
far below the surface or within a deep run, and that all connects and reflects back to the cone vision. So trout seeing an ice cream cone vision, as most of us learn or know as we fly fish, and that cone vision going from an angle above or between the eyes on top of the head, the closer that cone gets to the surface, the narrower the vision. The deeper that fish gets, the wider the cone, the more expanded the trout's vision is. So I think shallower water has better opportunities compared to deep water. The other key thing you want to look for is disturbance. Whenever there's calm water settings, it's amazing how many trout hold in those calm settings. But I also believe the largest trout hold there in comfort because it's easier for them to detect any predator from above. Compared to if they're in shallow or disturbed water on the surface, most of the time they're actively feeding. But as a safety measure, if they're holding in the tail out and it's calm on the surface and they're deep in the run with the wide vision and cone vision expanded to the side, if there's something over the head or any predator that comes in, boom, that fish can shoot right up into the head or the heart of the run, disappear, so it does play a big part. But I hope that helps in the answer because that, that was a great question, and that really does play a part in finding actively feeding trout. Well, that, that makes me think about another dimension to that situation. If a trout is in shallower water, they can see less is what you're saying. Do they also, mm -hmm. are they also feeling safer then? Um, and exactly. And a trout that's hunkered down in three feet of water at the bottom might not be feeling safe for whatever reason. Um, so sure. are they more, just more they than can, approachable? Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they can, I, personally I think what happens is they can just identify and see more. So the deeper they are, they can see more. The other thing I've, I've learned in the years of guiding and just trying to hunt and look for trout with others, and, of course, it's a daily process of learning something new, more and more trout are holding outside of these conventional deep runs. They're holding where there's complete disturbance above them, near structure for safety, but anything they can do to feel safe allows them to go into the aggression mode and start to actively feed. And that can be a riffled run, that can be swirling eddy, that can be overhanging trees or grass, you name it. But as soon as they find that comfort zone, boom, that's when they start to feed. But a lot of times, and we've, in Colorado, for example, for those who fish the South Flat, we've all been there. You hike into Cheeseman Canyon, you look down at this massive tail out of a run, and you see 100 fish. And it, it attracts you down like a magnet. You go to the edge of the river, you cast like crazy, and maybe you'll get a few of those fish to react. And the reason for that is I believe those fish, again, are in the shelter lie. They're just simply holding for safety and shelter. And as soon as that fish decides it's time to feed, boom, they move right up into comfort zone with complete cover and start to get their, their grub on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, Phil uh, McCartney again um, wrote in and says, how often do you see trout in water where you would not expect them to be? And you, you just mentioned that, um, that you're, yeah. you're realizing yep. there are trout where you didn't think they would be before. Um, uh, is, is that your observation, you know, your observations improving? Or is this a change in the way trout are moving because of pressure? I, I think it's both. And I really do think that the second answer there, the second question was pressure. I think that's the key. And to be honest, expect the unexpected. When you're walking and sight fishing and moving about the water, we try to learn as much as possible. And we hear we always have 
our eyes open to pages. We always have our ears out and open to hear or listen for anything, any key point, any knowledge that can advance us to help us catch more trout. But that being said, a lot of times it's repetitive. And that being said, too, with the pressure, trout are wonderful creatures that are adapting and evolving to their surroundings and environments. And it's, I can't tell you in the last year, for example, how many times you come across a, a run or come around a bend, see a fish in a specific location on the river where you've never seen them before, and they're actively feeding. Or you travel to another state and conditions, water and weather have changed, and all of a sudden the fish are moving and they're actively feeding in new locations that weren't there prior. So I do think the trout are moving to waters where we normally would not see them, and to be frank, some of this is out in the open. When trout move and migrate, sometimes I think when the hatch is heavy or the food supply is thick, they'll just stop and feed. And, and you can see that in whether it's Alaska, Colorado, Montana, Florida, the marsh for redfish. I mean, it, it's happening more and more for different species as well. Yeah, because I, I would expect being that you fish, you know, the same water so often that mm-hmm. you literally know – where every pocket run seam is, unless there's been a major change of, uh, you know, uh, heavy water that's moved things around. But So when you see one out of place, it's like, hmm, <laughs> what, what's he doing well, there? And, you know? Yeah, and you know, you know what's surprising about that too, Roger? It's actually, and, and you're right, there are locations in resident river trout. But the reason, and the question comes up a lot now, why did I choose the location where I teach and guide? And the reason for that, it's actually opposite of of what you were thinking. So I prefer South Park, and I like to travel because most of the trout, at least 60 to 70% of the trout in the South Platte River drainage in South Park are migratory. So these fish enter the river. They do have their tendencies where sometimes they can enter a certain location or they have the tendency to swim and look for specific water, whether it's the edge of the river or deeper runs. But it really is not the situation where Billy the Brown has been holding in a run for six years and we're trying to catch him. And that's what I believe keeps – that's what keeps it fresh, you know, and fun. So it's it's always a new page and you always have to have your A game. And the other thing that's led me to as well, Roger, is still waters. Because trout and stillwaters are in constant motion looking for food and they swim a majority of their lives, they're always in new locations, which forces you to really think outside of the box and have to constantly develop new ways and techniques and and areas and locations and try to pursue them. So it can be the case, don't get me wrong, some of those tailwaters where there's no migration, you'll absolutely have those fish. But I always encourage anglers, you know, the beauty of, different areas where there is migration is that it's never the same and depending on water it can forever change and it really allows you to become a better angler yeah good good uh let's take a quick break landon and uh we come back we'll, you bet. we'll dig into sight fishing some more so uh stick with me and we'll uh, be back in uh, 30 seconds watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support they are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. 
After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Landon Mayer about sight fishing for trout. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, we do have a question here, Landon, that came in on the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Wes in Cass, Cassville, Missouri. He says, does a lot of the information in regards to sight fishing still apply towards stock trout? Example, Roaring State Park in Missouri, one of our four state parks here. Um, so that's a... You are, bet, yeah. They I act think differently? They do, they do. I think they do. I, you know, a, a trout that's stocked, in my opinion, it's a new environment. So many times you'll have the fish start out where they're incredibly aggressive at the beginning when they're introduced to the water. They're also timid and wary. So if they're smaller in size, and they take a little while to become comfortable. Once they do, they also are new to hatches and everything else as far as obtaining food supply. So what I've learned is that over the years, if you run into stocked fish, you know, it's always good to investigate and find out when they were introduced, how many numbers, all that can play a part because then if you're there, let's say a month after the fish were introduced to the trout or to the fishery, then those fish will be accustomed to the food supply more than the fish that's been entered or dropped in a day or two, and then you're there, you know, following with the fish not being comfortable. The other thing I try to do is use, in rigging for stock trout, use more attractors. Because we have, on many waterways, there's two types of fish that are stocked, in my opinion. There's juvenile fish that are put in very small, you know, sub-catchable size, three to six, eight inches. And then you have catchable size, which can be 12, 16, or 20-plus inches. The catchable size react differently than subcatchable. And subcatchable, they're just trying to obtain food, so anything that attracts them can really get their attention. When the fish is the catchable size or they've been in the system longer, it's always nice to have a lead or trailing fly that attracts the fish and then on that same rig have something that looks more natural. So that could be even an egg, a San Juan worm, a scud, a leech, a copper john. Those are all attractors and then drop something that matches the hatch. And, and that's a great way to at least approach stock trout in addition to wild trout, depending on depending on what river system you're fishing. Do they, though, um, um, you're talking about food sources, but as far as mm-hmm. seeing them, their lies and so forth, like these stock trout less apt to, to find a good lie? Are they pushed out by... The, uh, the the fish that have been in the river longer? The dominant fish, sure. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that kind of pertains back to, so it's a connection in both. When when they're new to the system, I think they hold anywhere they stop and they feel comfortable. So it doesn't really reflect on a specific lie or a hole. But let's say the fish has been in the system for a week or two weeks, I think they quickly learn where they have to hide or maybe they follow the example of other trout and then most importantly, what you keyed in on there is any dominant fish within the area, they also have to be wary of aggression and, most importantly, predators. And I think a good example of that is Lake Tenicomo on the White or the White River in Arkansas, where 
thousands and thousands or even millions of fish are stocked, and those large, giant world record browns immediately know that's the dinner bell, so the fish have to be wary. So I would say trying to find out when they stock, look for not as conventional water or runs, kind of look throughout the whole river and cover every pocket and every location. If they're there for a while, then start focusing in and concentrating on more conventional deep runs, eddies, edges, and structure points. Okay, I have an answer from Phil about California, Kentucky. I I do not know (laughs) exactly how California, Kentucky gained that name. However, California, Ohio is just across the Ohio River from California, Kentucky. Also, Paris, Kentucky, and London, Kentucky were names that were already taken. (laughs) I was waiting for that one. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's funny. Um, We had another uh, Pete in Commerce City. This came in on the Internet. He says, hi, Landon. Uh, Can you talk about reds and how to stop stomping on them? Oh, that's a yeah, great, great question and a very important topic and one that we're battling on a regular basis. And for myself, what I've really learned over the years, and this is, we could even use that 10-year block, that 10-year window from when sight fishing first came out until now. I think with the amount of pressure and crowds, there's two things that we're going to try to focus on for our specific waters on the South Platte. And I think it's also knowledge I've learned and that can help hopefully other fisheries. I tend to focus most of my trips now as much as possible where I'm doing pre or post spawn. So let's say it's the fall and I'm targeting browns. I try to time my schedule and my trips where I'm going after the fish before they spawn when they're at their largest state and not as aggressive as it would be later, but size, that's when you catch some of the largest trout. And also post spawn where the fish, when they're done actively spawning, the fish are incredibly aggressive, and I would have to say out of those two timings on the shoulder of the spawn, when trout are post-spawn, you really do have better shots at catching more and larger trout. And then the question that comes up is how do you effectively fish during the spawn? And to be honest, that's when I start avoiding shallow water, two to three-inch cobblestone, and water that's anywhere from two to four feet deep because that's prime or even sandy bottoms. That's all prime zones for trout to spawn. So I intentionally avoid those locations. And then I also start focusing on the opposite species of trout if it's available. So during the fall, that's a great time to catch larger rainbows, cutthroats, and cutbows, and even some of the salmon when they're early and kicking around. And the same can be said in the spring. And, in fact, in a reference of the White River, just being there two weeks ago, some of their largest trout, being brown trout, are caught in the spring when they're post-spawn and that's when a completely different time frame of when the spawning usually starts. So that's one of the ways to avoid it. The other thing I'm a fan of doing is not for the whole year, but during the time or the month when trout are spawning, I quit night fishing entirely. So in October and early November, I no longer night fish because I believe with the amount of pressure daily, more trout are using the evening hours under complete cover and darkness to move into the shallows, and that's when the cooling temperatures are the most ideal for reds. And I just encourage anglers, walk around gravel, walk through deep runs above or below, and just try to avoid any time you see that kicked-up gravel that forms a spawning bed to ensure future generations of wild trout. Great, great. Um, Dino in Michigan, another question. You know, lots of good questions as well. Um, 
Uh, he says, are you able to make generalizations about trout species, browns and rainbows? How big a factor? Um, oh, that's the second question. But I, I, he's looking, you know, I, I guess looking for browns and rainbows. Is, is, do, you, do you look at that differently? Yeah. Yeah, behavior and tendencies. That's a that's a really great question. Thanks for asking that. That that is one thing I really do key in on. And it also goes even further from the species. It's it's also the sex, so male and female. And I, here's a good example. I find that most male trout tend to be very independent and aggressive by nature. They don't always hold in numbers or pods and deeper runs as a female trout would. And I also find that the rainbows, cutthroats, and cutbows, they tend to move more in numbers, and I don't find them migrating as far. So during our spring runs and the still waters and rivers and even traveling abroad, it's interesting that the fish, when it's their spawning cycle or spawning time and they migrate, you don't find the rainbows, cutthroats, and cutbows moving as far. Steelhead's a different story, of course, but that being said, we're dealing with a lot of tailwaters. And then brown trout, I find that brown trout migrate, but they would not migrate as far as the steelhead in some scenarios. So when they're sea-going and they're sea-running fish, they can travel miles and miles, and it's part of the cycle. But when you're dealing with fish that are within a system, even when they do migrate, I find that the rainbows aren't always as aggressive in migrating as the browns are. And we see that a lot on the South Platte or the South Holston River or any location within the states. And even Argentina and Chile traveling there and, and seeing some of their wild trout and waterways, it seems like the browns tend to be more aggressive than any other species. But in addition to that, really try to concentrate on the male and female factor, too, to determine what fish is willing to chase down a streamer or what fish would prefer to have that drift right to them or be fed nymphs or dry flies. Okay. Um, uh, Dino, again, how big a factor is water clarity beyond the obvious? Yeah, no, that's another great question. I love water that has a little tent or stain to it, to be honest. I, I think clear water settings are great when you have fish actively feeding because we learn so much from the trout's behavior because we get that detailed view. But the detailed view, in many respects, is only 25, 20% of the time or less. So that being said, stained water is, is awesome because it gives the trout just a little bit of cover. And let's say the tail out of a run that was in clear water, the fish would hold there, be wary, and it's not actively feeding. But then in reverse, let's say the flows kicked up or we had a heavy rain, all of a sudden that water is stained and off color. It's amazing when the fish are provided that cover and safety, how much they actively feed. And it gives you a chance to really start looking into other food supplies beyond what's hatching. Hatching bugs are from the moment or that time during day or the week or even the month, when flows increase, not only do you have the hatching bugs and the migrating bugs, you also have everything from the edge and the bottom of the river that's swept in or swept up, and that increases food supply, too, so it gives you a chance to throw other other imitations outside of just matching the hatch. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago that in clear water you can uh, study, you know, their feeding behaviors and their habits and their movements sure. and so forth. Um, talk about, um, for a minute, those things that you are looking for uh, when you, you know, first of all, to identify that there's even a fish there, and sure. then, you know, the, the feeding habits, you know, whether, how can you tell if they are feeding, 
or, or not and, and take it from there. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. The biggest thing I look for for trout in dirty and clear water is, is the dorsal fin, the closest object to the water surface. And the most important thing is the trout's tail, the propeller that keeps them balanced, keeps them in place. And unlike swaying vegetation, there's always a break in the motion, whether the fish feeds or makes an adjustment of where it's holding. It's not going to be the same swaying motion as vegetation or some moving structure in the water. And that being said, tails can also possess different colors. They can be bright and vibrant, or if the fish is migrating from a dark, deep waterway, they can be very dark. And in stained water, that sticks out. And, of course, in clear water, you can see that even easier. And when I'm locating trout, once I see the tail, I then try to relax my eyes and instead of using my focal vision, allow my peripheral vision to come into play. And a lot of times by doing that, from the tail, all of a sudden, just like a three-dimensional image on the wall, the silhouette of the trout appears. And the tendencies of a trout that's feeding, I tend to see them doing this. They'll drift back slightly. And a lot of times the fish prefer, even if they're moving side to side, they'll slightly drift back, lift up, consume the meal. And when they're consuming the meal, the mouth is open when they're turning and the mouth is closed when they straighten their body out. And by seeing that drift back and then seeing those turning motions with the straightening, that lets me know if I can't see the white of the mouth or the whole body of the trout, that at least lets me know that that's a familiar motion and movement of a fish that's actively feeding. Okay. Um, once you spot a fish, um, do you end up taking a different position for your presentation? Are the two oh, yeah. separate All, activities? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And I always the – one, the one key thing in the book for sight fishing for trout is there's, there's a chapter that reflects on the ABCs and talks – we talk a lot in – the text and go into detail about what is the ABCs, and that's giving yourself three locations, A, B, or C, where to make a presentation from. And the biggest challenge and thing that I fight all the time whenever I locate a trout myself or with clients is I'm always viewing the water around the fish. So once you spot the target, see the fish's feeding behavior, the very next step needs to be looking at the current. How can you get a productive drift? Is it even current speed? Are you battling multiple current speeds? And that will tell you right away whether you should be downstream, upstream, on the other side of the river. And the most important ingredient there is you have to make sure you're eliminating any movement above the trout. You don't want to spook the fish. You'd rather your flies come into display first. So looking at the water speed, determining where the drift's coming from, and then making sure that when you do make a presentation, the fly is seen, but you're remaining out of the picture. And that all plays a big part when you're dealing with feeding trout and determining out of those three locations where to make a cast. Yeah, in your book, um, you, I noticed there was a picture. I'm trying to find it now. I can't remember the exact caption. But you've got somebody in the uh, foreground, and they're probably within mm -hmm. three feet of a fish that you can see in the water, and he's behind mm -hmm. the fish showing that you can get quite close. Um, oh, yeah, uh, with, very close. From, from the behind situation. So generally, do, right. is, is that one of your better approaches is from behind? It is to capture the visual. So when I'm, when I'm walking, most of the time for dries and nymphs, most of the time I approach the river from downstream moving up if possible. 
If not, if I'm doing streamers, it's reverse where I start at the head of the run and I'm retrieving or swinging flies down to the trout. Of course, if you're walking, that's different than drifting. If you're drifting, a lot of times you're drifting downriver. But I do, that does come into play, and it does play a big part in determining the angles and, and how you make the presentation. But the blind side is key to see the fish's feeding behavior. Then you have to figure out where's my casting position. And let's say you see a trout, and it's clear in view if you're below the fish, but upriver there's glare. Then just use markers within the river. It could be a colored rock, something, you know, grass clump on the bank, something that gives you a reference of where the trout's holding, then move into a casting position where you no longer have the visual and then present to the trout. So there's numerous times where you don't always maintain the visual of the trout feeding, but at least you know the zone where it's holding. Uh, question. Sometimes I see trout feeding, which gives their position away. What can I learn from their feeding behavior that will help me to catch them? Oh, absolutely. And I... That's the biggest thing about trout that gives themselves away is a fish is actively feeding. And a good, a good example of that, but let's say it's a deep run and the fish is lifted up in the column. And every time the fish lifts, it's coming from four feet of water and eating emergers just below the surface. And they'll do that side to side. They'll do that frantically within a run. But just like a poker player, there's usually a tell. There's something that the fish prefers, whether it be the fish eating to the right eating to the left, drifting backwards, there's usually the tendencies and the repetitive movement of the trout. It'll have a preference of where it feeds, how it feeds. So when you're seeing that activity, really just hone in on that fish actively feeding, try to determine what it prefers. Is it high in the column, low, side to side, and that then in turn will let you know where to make a more productive presentation. And it also can help you in determining the discipline. If the fish is close to the surface, there's a really good chance it would take a dry fly. If the fish is holding just below the surface and you have a heavy nymph rig, that's when you need to make an adjustment. And I always joke because we're near the holiday season and it's an excuse to spend another $1,500 on a fly fishing outfit. But I encourage <laughs> anglers, you know, it is. It, it happens all the time, and I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. But I, I, most of the time on my trips, whether it be myself or with a client, we're double-fisted if not triple-fisted, and being able to have disciplines that you can switch quickly. So when you see that feeding trout and it's giving away the high water column, if I have a dry fly and a nymph rod, I can then switch from my nymphs to drives and be ready to go. So that's another way to, to really find more fish taking your bugs and spooking less trout because you're right there and ready to make the, make the cast and presentation. Uh, Phil McCartney again, uh, another question. If a big trout you have spotted is not actively feeding, do you wait until it's feeding or try to annoy it, tempt it to, into a take? <laughs> a little bit of both. I think I think most trout find me very annoying. So <laughs> find you <laughs> yeah, annoying? <laughs> yeah, they do. I think so. I think so. But I, you know, I've, here's what I've learned with that. And again, in the ten year block or the ten year window, as, as I mature as an angler. I've learned that the slower I take my process, the more I can see. The quicker I can deliver the fly, the more I can catch. And and that being said, I mean, you really do need to look at the whole picture, but that, that plays a, a very big part in, in trout that are feeding or trout that are simply holding. And the other thing that blows a lot of people away, I would say 
on average, at least 15 to 25% of the trout that I see with clients or myself daily do not feed. In fact, I'm, I'm working on an article right now and an experience with a good friend of mine, Phil Torelli, on the water, and we both guide and teach full-time. And we experienced a fish recently that even after trying to switch up, given resting periods, an hour later, the fish simply would not take the fly. And that, that really does, I think, in my opinion, teach you more than a trout that's willing to take right away because you have to go through the process and figure it out. The other thing you can do is once you spot it, come back to that fish when there's better conditions, better lighting, better flows. You at least know that fish is within the zone, so it gives you an opportunity to catch them. Um, Frank, uh, Kate or Kata, Loveland, Colorado, says, do you have techniques for spotting and catching trout in lakes? I have done some of this but have trouble getting fish to see my fly at times. Absolutely. And, and it's, just like, it's just like seeing a fish on a river that's starting off in the morning, you know, two feet below the surface, and then as the hatch progresses, you're literally watching that fish feed faster than every second it's consuming a meal. And it, it just makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up and gives you goosebumps. When you ask that question about still waters, I get, I get that same response. Sight fishing in still waters is incredible because the trout in still waters, unlike rivers, are in constant motion. So when I talked a little bit before about looking for the tail, that becomes even more important when you're dealing with still waters. And the other thing to look for for the still water bite is look for color change whether it's color change from a drop-off or color change to where you can identify vegetation on a rocky or a sandy flat because these are all locations where trout feel comfortable just like they would in the river and where they're actively moving. When you do sight fish on still waters, though, just remember you need to really use your peripheral vision more than your focal vision because these trout are moving, and they can cover even on a slow-moving slow pace it's surprising how fast they could cover 20 to 25 feet. So those are some of the tips and things to remember when you're trying to look for fish in still water. And that's that's all in the new book. That was one of my exciting things to add to the site fishing for trout is that I did fish a lot of Great Lakes and still waters before, but we added a good 35, I think 25 to 3,500 words in the chapters about the still water opportunities as well. So there's, there's just a wonderful blend for rivers and still waters. Uh, Frank also asks, he says, I enjoy sight fishing for bonefish, but they are scarce in Colorado. You're darn right they are. <laughs> but he says, carp are a freshwater substitute. Any, any advice right. you can uh, carry over from trout to carp? Because that's a big deal here in Colorado, um, especially Oh, it in, is. Uh, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And, and don't, now, great question. And don't stop there. The way you feed carp is the same way you should think about feeding trout. And it's honestly a technique that I learned when I started fishing for tarpon heavily in my 20s. I learned with tarpon that you have to intercept the target. So it's just like a quarterback that's trying to hit a, a, you know, a crossing route to a receiver. He's not throwing to the receiver. He's throwing to the position where the receiver is eventually going to be, and that's how they connect to make the catch. It's the same thing in still waters when you're dealing with carp and trout. You're imagining and you're seeing the fish's moving behavior, and you're leading the fish. Once that fish intercepts your fly, then supply movement, and it's unbelievable how productive that is for carp, but also for trout and for tarpon. And it's a really nice way and productive way 
to intercept moving and feeding fish. Let's talk about uh, rods and rigging here for a, a few minutes. We've got some questions. Eric Heyer sure. in Bloomsdale, Missouri says, do you fish small streams in the Midwest? And uh, so what, what rods would you use for these small streams? Yeah, that's a great question. I do, and I've, I've enjoyed some of the small streams and spring creeks from from Midwest, East Coast, even West, where I think what I've learned on the small stream side is that I, I tend to go light. I'm a Winston fan, so I love medium fast action rods. And the reason that's an advantage in the small waters is, let's say you have a seven, eight foot rod. If you have a supple tip, it allows you to have more give. You get more play from the fish, and you don't have to worry about missing where a stiff rod or less supple tip can pull the fly away from the trout. And I I find that to be effective because many situations with those small streams or creeks, you have glassy water, but you also have pocket water, and you're combat fishing the whole time. So you're just trying to tuck cast or make presentations in these small pocket zones. And you may not have a long drift, but if you have a supple tip, you can really load effectively and then have that give when the trout takes and you don't pull it away from as many fish. Do you, um, Are you a fan of the... the the longer contact minting rods that um, are kind of trending nowadays. I am. Okay. I am, yeah. The, the one the one I've endorsed and, and I helped with some of the design was the Super 10 model from Winston, which is available in a 3, 4, and 5 weight. And, and just as we used the reference before, rivers and still waters, I use them both religiously now in rivers and in still waters. And the advantage with the rods is keeping contact and line manipulation on many river settings what I've also found is in still waters, having that extra foot and height keeps your connection not from a presentation point of view, but from a battling point of view. So you can, the fish runs 50, 60, 70 feet away from you, the height keeps you connected. Or if the fish is moving down and sweeping to the next bend fast in the river, the leverage from the side keeps you connected. So it's not only presentation, it's also in fighting trap that those rods really do work. And you're fishing uh, 10 foot? Is that what you said? 10 foot, yeah. I fish 9s, 10s, and I also do some swinging with a 11 foot 4 weight micro spay. So I do a little oh, mix wow. of all. And that 11 foot rod is also effective not only for swinging, but it's also effective in some of the larger stillwater settings. Like a good, a good example there would be Pyramid Lake in Nevada. I've learned fishing there with Arlo or Casey or Doug Olette. Arlo Townsend, Casey Anderson. These are all really good anglers, Mike Anderson, that, you know, when you're on these big waterways, you can false cast, but what you learn quickly, just kind of like the space setting and on a river, you learn that battling waves and being able to utilize a snap tee or any other casting stroke that you're, you're using that roll cast or that load from the D loop to shoot your line. So it is very effective. And again, when the fish runs into your backing, 11 feet is going to give you more connection than nine, so it gives you a chance to land more trout. Tom Melville, uh, Staten Island, New York, uh, asks, uh, what leader length and tippet do you use? Yeah, great question. Most of my leaders are fairly long. I will, I will use shorter leaders in situations where I don't have to disguise my rig, which some people may think that's opposite. They think, uh, a short leader is, is not going to be meant for disguising, but a short leader gives you more connection to your flies. So shorter leaders for me 
oftentimes are heavy nymph rigs or streamers. But I would say on average that my built my built up rig for dries, nymphs, and streamers, dries and nymphs can average anywhere from 10 to 15 feet on average. And I would say it's probably in the middle, more close 12. For streamers, if if I'm using a heavily weighted fly in the floating line, my leader tends to be nine feet. If I'm using a sink tip or a sinking line, my leader tends to be four feet or less. So I do shorten it up because I want my fly to be closer to the sinking contact in the tip of the sinking line. But the nice thing about long leaders is you create less drag. The fish can't identify it as well as they could the fly line. And when we match that with fluorocarbon, we get that soft land, line manipulation, and all that goes out of the window so you don't have to worry about your drift and less resistance to your drift as well. So whether you're check style or keeping contact to your flies going deep or you're using a lot of mens and S-curves in your leader and you're dry fly fishing on the surface, that's a true advantage in using a longer leader. When you're, um, when you're nymphing, are you using, yeah, I think I heard you say you're, your built-up leaders. Um, are mm-hmm. you building those out and staying away from uh, tapered leaders? Yeah, I build them. I, I do keep the tapered leader. I like a tapered leader where I cut back the tapered leader a lot of time. It, let's say it's nine feet long. I'll cut it back three feet because I do enjoy that really thick butt section tapering thin because when we have to battle wind, it becomes that contact point that's uh, that's, you know, tough and stiff and it'll turn the leader over. But from that point of six feet, I do build moving forward quite a bit. If I can get away with heavier tippets, I'll do so. And and I know one of the questions was, do I use tippet rings? And, and I do. I use tippet rings, and I also found a lot of use recently for swivels. That's another thing that's really evolved and advanced for me in the last 10 years is the usage of tippet wings. And now swivels, believe it or not, with scientific anglers, they have them down to a number 14, which is incredibly small. And it gives you a chance to have more freedom of motion and movement to your rig and also gives you a couple connection points for tag-in. So whether it's a triple surgeon's knot, a blood knot, a tippet ring, or using one of the swivels, I always try to do that from a built leader. And typically I'll start anywhere from 8 to 10 feet, and then I'll build from that point, whether it's a knot, tippet ring, or swivel forward. Now, when would you use a swivel versus a tippet ring? I think the swivel, for me, I find that more effective when I need movement out of my fly. So if I'm using one of my mini leech jigs or my mare's mini leech, and I want to maximize the movement, I'll use a swivel, because in addition to moving up and down with the current, it also twists and sways. If I'm if I'm using something that's more stationary, let's say a nymph or an emerger, or I'm trying to swing the fly and keeping contact more, then I'll go with a tippet ring where I'm not, I don't want as much freedom of motion or movement where it's twisting and lifting and dropping in the current. Yeah, kind of like when you're using a um, uh, a loop for your yeah, fly exactly. that you want to get more movement out of. So this is just a, another dimension of that. It sounds like. Yeah. It is, and, and it's, it's, it's very, very important. And, in fact, this sounds like a plug, but it's, it's very important because in the process of making this book, we came out with a video this, this year as well, which is titled Mastering the Short Game. And in the video, we used high, high-res graphics and really detailed, crisp photographs 
and we show the building of each one of the leaders with drives, mints, and streamers. So it starts from the fly line, and it's a moving graphic, and it shows you the build. And what's cool about that is in addition to the build, we also use the reference of when and when not to use a loop knot. So you keep that connection where if you wanted a firm connection or you want freedom, movement, and breathability, then that really was a great advantage to that video. And and it, you can find it on my website. You can also find it online. It's, it's mastertheshortgame.com. But that really was one of the motivations for us to make that video is what we're discussing because rigging has become a very important part but a very confusing portion of fly fishing for many anglers now because they just don't know what to rig when and what really is going to help them for that specific time and place. Um, so in regards to that, mono or fluorocarbon or both? Yeah, great question. I, I carry both. The more that I can use fluorocarbon, the better off I am. And I'll use, even for dry flies, my secret weapon is fluorocarbon tips connected to a monofilament leader. You get floatability, and then you have a disguised, non-reflecting of light of the fluorocarbon tip. And, yes, fluorocarbon does sink, but only when I'm doing 4X or larger will I strictly go to monofilament, 5, 6, and 7X. I don't believe the thin diameter is heavy enough to always sink the dry fly. And sometimes that can be an advantage where instead of riding on the surface, you're riding in the film. So I use, I'd say, 70% of the time fluorocarbon, 30% of the time monofilament. And let's be honest, for sake of price and purchasing, too, it's nice to have monofilament, less expensive, where you could use the leader. And if you have dirty water, you can rely on fluorocarbon for abrasion resistance for strength and then also non-reflecting of light, so it can be cost-effective to use both as well. Okay. Um, do you rig up differently for different water depths? If so, how? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing for me. I've, I've really enjoyed the last two or three years concentrating on more top water droppers. So I'm doing a lot of dry droppers now because I believe with the amount of pressure and what trout are seeing all the time, whether it be the tip of the rod, strike indicator, I just find that fish are more comfortable with the dry dropper. But absolutely, if I'm if I'm dealing with a fish that's holding deep in slow water, for example, I'm going to take everything off of my rig that looks unnatural, including split shot and tippet rings or swivels, and I'm going to go straight fluorocarbon and then I'll use the weight of the fly to sink the fly, not any split shot, not a tippet ring, and then I'll try to match with a clear thingamabobber or something on the surface that looks white or like a bubble so that fish isn't going to spook. And then if there's trout holding, let's say it's shallow water, and the fish does not have time to investigate my rig, then it's fair game. Then I can rig up, and I'm not as concentrated on looking natural I'm concentrating on matching the depth to where I know the fish can see my fly and then appear as a natural drifting. You talked, uh, you talked just now about multi-fly rigs. Um, there's been a lot of controversy on, on how to yeah. tie those together. You know, do you tie to the bend? Right. Do you tie to the eye? Do you tie a tag, sure. you know, and tie onto that? Sure. What, what's, what's your thoughts on that? I, my thought on that is that you need to tie it to where it matches the profile. Most importantly, the profile of the food supply. And second to that, also rig it to where it's going to be effective and it doesn't foul. So what I find in my home waters, 
we have the issue of, of W. Never say wind, always say W, and it won't blow 500 miles an hour. But in dealing with W, it's, it's an ongoing struggle because if you have a tag and your tag's 10 inches compared to being connected from I to bend, and you're making a forward cast or you're using tension cast and that wind blows, it's surprising how many times it can tangle up. But on the other side, I can see the advantage, and I do use a lot of tags and eye-to-eye connections now. And the reason for that is let's say the insect or the scud is moving in the water horizontal, not vertical. If I tie to the eye, that bug is going to then drift, and the profile will be horizontal like a natural compared to if I tie to the bend where it would be vertical. So I first think about profile of the food, and then I also think about consistency and preventing less tangles and how effective it is for me to drift and make casts without worrying about trying to get out of the penalty box. Uh, uh, Rick Takahashi. Uh, I know you mm. know Rick, and he's been on my show a ah. times, too. Great fly tire. <laughs> he's great. Yeah. Great uh, he says, Landon, when fishing your mini leech pattern, how do you set up the rig? What fly rod weight and length do you prefer, and how do you present the pattern, and how long do you drift the pattern? <laughs> That's all great questions. I, I really appreciate that talk. He's, again, he's a great guy. you got to check out Rick Takahashi's work. It's incredible. The um, the biggest thing I in designing the mini leech, and this is the reason I came up with that fly, it's incredibly versatile in the sense that you can use it for multiple disciplines. And I'll just name three off the top of the head ways that I would rig it. So for dry flies, I like to rig that below the dry, whether it's my mini leech jig, which is weighted, or even unweighted, the micro pine squirrel, when it's wet, it will sink below the surface. And below a dry fly, it's nice because you capture the trout's attention, it sees a free-moving leech, and then, boom, it's fair game. On the nymph rig, I prefer to use that as a trailing fly if it's the mini leech, if it's unweighted. And the reason for that is I can dead drift, but at the end of every presentation or drift, I can allow my flies to lift up, naturally swing to the surface, and a lot of times that can trigger a take. And the coolest thing about the the mini leech, and this is one of my personal favorites, let's say you're fishing streamers, and how many times have you been there where the trout chases a streamer to the bank? Well, let's say you took a size 18 or 16 mini leech and you attached it to a tippet connection to the bend of the hook, and the next time that fish is following the large streamer, when it turns from refusing, boom, right in view, or as it's chasing, it's going to see that smaller leech, and it's incredible how many times a fish will take that. So that's three ways and effective ideas and rigging and ways to present that can, can really produce great results with the mini leech. Okay, we're running out of time. We've got a couple more questions I'd like to hit. Um, uh, Ari in Newbury Park writes in and says, what's your preference when fishing emergers to picky trout? Let's say a trico or pseudo hatch. Uh, do you go dropper or straight emerger? Uh, I find it very difficult to get a good drift with the dropper setup. What are some tricks in yeah. these situations? Absolutely. I agree with that. I think the droppers a lot of times can create drag. So in situations like that, two things I'll do. When in doubt, sink it. If it's a single dry fly and I find that there's drag, a lot of times I'll allow a dry fly without any floating to just naturally sink in the film. And it's amazing how much comfort trout find if it's just below the film. 
The other thing to think about, too, is the imitation or pattern. Try to match imitations that are stuck in the shuck. So if it's an emerging insect to the surface, if it's stuck in the shuck to where it doesn't become the full adult, that's a chance for the fish to eat it without it escaping. Okay, and then lastly, Wayne in San Diego, uh, California, he says, what's the best strategy for targeting trout feeding under foam in low-flow soft water conditions? Yeah, in, in soft water and foam, I think one of the advantages that you can use is to just, first off, start with a dead drift, and then you can match the foam to a strike indicator to allow you to see the take or you can also blend in color to really know that you've, you've gotten to take or to see the strike. The other thing about foam is that because the trout is supply cover and it's happy, a lot of times you can use attractors with movement to trigger better results than just trying to use something that's specifically matching the hat. All right. Well, that about does it for us tonight. We're, we're darn out of time again, but... Uh, we got through most of our questions, and thanks, everybody, for sending those questions in. Uh, I know no, Landon gets excited. He likes questions. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy giving back, man. I, I love this. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody stick with us for a few more minutes. We're going to do our giveaways and uh, prizes, and, and specifically give away Landon's book, Sight Fishing for Trout, the second edition. Uh, and by the way, if you uh, want to find out more about Stackpole, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you'll see all the different books that they have available. Um, just uh, one of the great publishers in the industry. So um, uh, check them out, stackpolebooks.com. And, of course, you can find uh, land, a link to Landon's book on the right-hand side of the column there on our homepage tonight, uh, or go to landonmayorflyfishing.com. Right, Landon? You bet. Okay. You bet. Okay. And um, so hang tight, and we'll be back in a minute and give those prizes away. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, uh, peer coaching, nature and uh, support network, which in turn uh, renews the spirit and, and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. So to view their current wish list and learn how you can support their retreats, visit their site, uh, fishon.org. Again, it's fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments and we'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. You don't want to miss out on your chance at some of the incredible prizes we have to offer. Now, if you are a lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first up, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. They're a great organization to support, and um, uh, they do a lot of conservation projects. Um, so go out to the site, learn more about them, and join up.
And our winner, fire up our database here. Okay, the winner for FFI is going to be John Lancaster. John Lancaster in uh, Mississippi. Um, so uh, congratulations, Congratulations. John. Uh, yeah, we don't get a lot of listeners out of Mississippi, so good to have you, good to have you on board. So uh, congrats on that. Um, the second thing we're giving away is a one-year member or subscription to uh, Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And you can learn more about that at amatobooks.com. So check them out. They've got uh, several publications that they offer, as well as many books on fly fishing as, uh, uh, as well. So check out amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is going to be David Bond, David Bond in Colorado. So, David, congratulations on that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for joining us and paying attention and, um, and uh, signing up for our, our prizes. Now it's time to uh, give away, thanks to Stackpole Books, a uh, copy of Landon's latest book, Sight Fishing for Trout, the second edition. Uh, so um, the question, now the, the, the way you answer this question is you go to our homepage on askaboutflyfishing.com, and you will uh, find that question, that Q&A box there. Um, same place you've asked questions during the show. This is where you can answer, uh, the, give the answer for this question. And if you are the first uh, person to answer the question, then correctly, then you'll win um, Landon's book, Sight Fishing for Trout. So um, let's see here. Um, Landon said he uses a mixture of mono and fluorocarbon uh, for different purposes, but uh, he gave a couple of, threw out a couple of percentages that he kind of breaks it down. What percentage mono and what percentage fluorocarbon does he kind of uh, use on a regular basis? Uh, so that's the question. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of off the wall. Some of them are, you know, sure. these guys guess these things in advance before I answer the question. I right. mean, before I ask the question, they right. already got the answer. <laughs> and I'm trying to throw something a little obscure out there. I don't know how there useful you go. it is, but we'll see who's paying real good attention and taking notes. And, uh, um uh, now we're, it, it takes a moment before because we've got a slight delay on the broadcast, and then and they'll be uh, typing away here and see if we can't find ourselves a winner out there uh, to do that. Um, you said uh, while we're we're talking about that or waiting for that, um, you, you said Landon, you you know early days did a lot of tarpon fishing, so you were in the salt quite uh-huh. a bit. Um, I did. did uh, I did it. Yep. Yeah, uh, Phil had sent in something online here. He says. Uh, what saltwater fly fishing do you have time for and excited about doing, and do you find some of the techniques that you've written about paying off in saltwater fly fishing? Yeah, I'd say for me the biggest ones were, of course, tarpon and, and learning how to feed a fish. And then I think the the other one that I've really enjoyed as of late is the um, Louisiana, the marsh, and dealing with some of the reds in some of that scenario as well. That's wow. really it's opened up my game for streamer fishing. So I think those two, as far as traveling and mixed with some salt, it, it really has benefited bringing that back home to trout. Yeah, yeah. Did you used to live uh, uh, near the salt, or was were you just working no, on No, no, just, just interested, yeah. As, as a kid, yeah. I would watch Billy Payton, Stu App, and some of these guys after the big fish. So I'd, I thought, why not try it and, you know, just expand and try to grow the knowledge base as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, Cody, uh, in Colorado Springs, you were close, but not quite right. You said 60-40. Um, no, nope, we're looking for a different percentage uh, ratio there. You can certainly try again if you can get in there before somebody else does. Um, still checking here, waiting for incoming here. And um, uh, let's see here. Looks like we've got um, looks like we've got a winner here. Um, I think it was thirty seventy, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, Landon, yeah. So Victor, yes, it was. You uh, bet. Yeah, Victor Hahn in Golden, Colorado, seventy percent plural, thirty percent mile. So yeah, congratulations, Victor, and um, you can use congratulations the techniques right here in Colorado. <laughs> well, yeah, where they were born. And if you, yeah, exactly. And if, if you have any questions about them too, and any questions about the book, if you have a chance to enjoy the read, obviously, then uh, reach out to the website and. Happy to help out beyond today's podcast and show. So I really appreciate everybody's support and listening in. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thanks for that offer. Um, so, um, Victor, you need to send in um, your – using the same text box, just put in your address in there so that we can get Stackpole to send that book out to you. And uh, thanks again to Stackpole for providing that. And thanks to Landon for writing that. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, thanks, yeah, thanks again, Lander, for, Landon, for uh, being on the show. We always enjoy your uh, your knowledge sharing and uh, your expertise. So uh, thanks again. My pleasure. No, thanks to everybody, and, and especially you, Roger, and putting on the show. You've done a great job over the years, and it's, it's always a pleasure to work with you. So happy happy holidays to you and everybody else, and I hope to see you at the shows or on the water and, and wishing everybody success. Yeah, and if you do see Landon at the show, Tell them you listen to the show here and uh, say hi so uh, we can make those connections. Uh, uh, we always like to hear that. Um, well, so hopefully you, you've all found our archive on our website. We've got a podcast archive there. If, if you look for the link in the top of the top line menu, you'll see podcast archive. Just click on that link, and you'll see over 300 shows there available to you now. And you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, medicine, rivers, like fishing, uh, so uh, go out there and search around, and there's just tons to learn. Um, and so uh, check that out. Our next broadcast will be on December 18th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, and we'll be interviewing Skip Morris, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. Over the many years that Skip Morris has fished and written about fly fishing, he's uncovered many nuggets of information that have helped him and others to catch more fish. Whether it's trout, bass, or panfish, Skip has something to share that will improve your odds. So listen in and up your game. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Okay.